I love to open it and just smell it. Anyone do that with these ancient books? Like my favorite spot at UCLA when I was doing my grad work was the upstairs Young's Research Library because it's where all of these old, old books were stored. And you'd walk up there and you'd kind of just, I'd do a big huff. Just kind of smell it in, smell the books, smell the oldness, the knowledge. And I, I would get brilliant new ideas. Turns out I was getting high off of the glue from the books, but the ideas were, they were just, no, I'm kidding. I love old things. Uh, one of my favorite people that I hang out with are old, dead people. I read ancient texts all the time. I love to just get away from the 21st century and think about the biggest questions in these other contexts. Last thing I'll say, one of my favorite things to do is to go somewhere in the middle of LA to, when I want to relax. If I, I used to do this more often before I had four kids, but it would be to get to a, the most crowded, busy part of the city. You know when you could put your hand on the sidewalk and feel the energy and the movement and look strange with your hand on the sidewalk and people are like, sir, move it along. But just to be there. And then I think, what would my ancient buddies think of this? What would their minds sort of be astounded at? What would they think of it? So I'm always thinking about the past. On strength finders, my number one, they give you like four or five major strengths. My number one is context, which means I can't think about the present without understanding where it, from whence it came. I need to get my uh, mind into those things. And so I've titled the sermon today, Vintage Priorities. Vintage Priorities. And if you've read the blurb, I spent far too much time on it. Like, way, way too much time on it. So do read that and make me feel like I'm not completely wasting, which I did, several hours. But I indicated that we live in a world, a today, a future-oriented today, where there are some old problems playing at new levels. Now, I am a cultural historian also, and a follower of Jesus, so I'm watching things play out with one half of my brain just interest. I'm just interested in the discourse. I'm interested in what's happening and the way in which folks are uh, operating in community as individuals, how art and culture and politics are rolling out. The other side, I live in it. So I'm analyzing this and I'm thinking about this and noticing a few things, two in particular, that I don't think I have to prove to you. I think you will say, yes, you're kind of right. Two Old problems that are playing at new levels, new decibels. One of them is called division, and the other one is called superficial spectacle. Division and superficial spectacle. They've always been around. Paul of Tarsus will be dealing with these and has dealt with them in the letter we're looking at. But today, I think never before have I encountered in my lifetime, which is getting longer, every year, this level of division. And you'll hear contemporary scholars saying the same thing, and we all kind of know it's true. From everything, uh, everything from our, our food consumption to, of course, how we vote, of course, um, how we consume and purchase, to education, to journalism, to entertainment, and everything in between, 
it seems like we are breaking into smaller and smaller and smaller subgroups that are demanding ultimate loyalty, that are asking you to be, in every conversation, the avatar for that team, to be the champion for that team wherever you go. Again, not new, but it's playing at a level that I've just never encountered before. And historically, it's pretty significant. And the second one, superficial spectacle. We are in a soundbite culture. We know that. Our memory can often be as long as it takes for our thumb to hit the screen of the phone, pull it down, refresh, and whatever else pops up. Oh, yeah, there. that's what's important right now. Clickbait, right? So important in our mass communication. Get eyeballs on you. And then the insistence that we look good, that things are appearing very, very good. Punditry. Groupthink. I mean, there's all kinds of interesting cultural phenomena that have been going on for centuries but are seriously cranking the volume today. And what's interesting about being a a Jesus follower in community is that then we come together and guess what? Those same sort of enemies at the gate of human society are going to find themselves wanting to lay eggs in our community here. I love mixing metaphors, by the way, if you haven't noticed. So does Paul of Tarsus. I am in labor pains that Christ may be formed in you. He does it all the time, Galatians. So today, what what I want to do as we close off this letter and we look at the last chapter, I will suggest two vintage Pauline priorities. We're going to do something so weird that we actually do every week, that is weird of us. It's strange of you. I'm talking to you. It's strange that you spend so much time in an ancient anthology of ancient Mediterranean literature. It's really weird that you spend time consuming this stuff, thinking about it. But we're going to go there for some, I hope, answers to these age-old and never-so-terrible diseases that we're facing. Um, The first we'll encounter as we read 1 Corinthians 16. You can open up. Last sermon I went uh, 45 minutes. I'm going for for 25 minutes this time, folks. Can it be done? What are the odds? What's the bet? I want in. Get me on the action. No one's betting for that. We're going to do it. Watch what happens. 1 Corinthians 16. Paul's wrapping things up. Now, about the collection for the Lord's people. Again, if you remember, we're on one end of a phone conversation, right? There's a lot of assumptions and things discussed that we, um, that are taken for granted in the letter. Paul's just writing to a community about uh, particular matters that at first glance seem, why do I care about that? And I think as we look a bit deeper, we'll realize there's many reasons to care. Now, about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then, when I arrive, I'll give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, 
they will accompany me. So this last chapter, it ends on what looks like kind of the end credits or P.S. Here are a few things to think about. Um, But it certainly reveals much more than that. The first point I titled, the first point of the sermon, Vintage Priorities, I titled Costly Unity. I think an antidote, a solution for some of the ubiquitous division that threatens us as individuals, threatens a church, threatens a community, is costly unity. Rediscovering the importance and the insistence on unity that at least Paul of Tarsus and the churches he planted seem to care about. And this collection Paul's taking, just a one-minute piece of background, this collection Paul's taking is a tangible and practical way of addressing the, one of the greatest threats facing the ancient Christians, which was division along ethnic lines. There was indeed a more homogeneous Jewish community uh, of Jesus-following uh, uh, Christians, in Jerusalem, based out of Jerusalem. And then there were the churches Paul deals with, which most folks came from polytheistic Gentile backgrounds and were following Jesus. There was, of course, many among them that would have identified as a child of Abraham. But there was great tension, not only in the churches over this division, but also in the culture. If Paul writes this letter, I don't know, in the 50s A.D., If he writes this letter in the 50s, in 66 AD, the largest provincial revolt Rome ever experienced takes place based out of Jerusalem. The great Jewish revolt of 66. Millions of people slaughtered. Took two full Roman legions to put it down. The very Colosseum that you see when you go to Rome, amazing work of um, Flavian architecture, That was built off of the plunder and the slaves acquired in the wake of that revolt. Why do I say this? Because things were not going well in the world between the Jewish communities, at least those based in Jerusalem and elsewhere. What they would see as the Gentiles, the nations, the Romans. Things, tensions were high. And here we see Paul doing something that we get a peek at, and I won't read it to you, but you can look at Romans 15 uh, 25 to 27, where Paul tells the Roman church, all right, y'all, I'm heading to Jerusalem. I want you, we're passing the plate, so to speak. We want to fill it up because we're going to bring tangible, real help to our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. We're not just going to say, we're with you. I know there's tension. And there was some famine and some other economic challenges they were facing. He didn't just pray a prayer and send good thoughts. Those famous, like, tweets, right? Thoughts and prayers. He's like, no, we're going to do thoughts, prayers, and we're going to personally go with a parade of support and actual money to care for needs where they are, right? And so he's calling on all these churches, and it's a bit awkward for him. Because like today, I know money's not awkward to talk about today, right? That was a joke. Of course it is. It's really awkward. It was awkward then, and Paul is saying, no, we need to do this. And it was one of his major projects. We see show up. Galatians talks about it as well. Costly unity. It costs something. In 2 Corinthians, he has to re-remind the Corinthians. 
about this collection. He says, I'm not commanding you, in chapter 8, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the eagerness of others. So he's saying, hey, other people have given to this fund. Y'all haven't. Let's get moving. He says, for you know the, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, and that through his poverty you might become rich. Like, where are we going to get this crazy idea that folks will probably never see, because you would probably never see, go to Jerusalem if you're living in Corinth. Folks will never see, you can kind of put out of your brain because there's no news feed going to update you on them. Where do you get the audacity to say, let's collect money and go and bring it to them? Especially if you suspect, well, I don't know if they really care for us anyway, because we're these Gentile, Jesus-following folks. Where do you get the audacity to do that? Here's where. Jesus. He goes to Jesus. He was so rich. He was so comfortable. He was all the accoutrements of divinity and power and luxury and honor, and he cashed it in. Why? Because he wanted to reunite that which was shattered in the fall and that which is continually shattered every generation when systems of oppression and human divisiveness infect our communities. And so Jesus goes, I will jump into the black hole of violence, the black hole of division. I will connect that which has been disconnected with my blood and my body. And Paul can go, remember that whole thing? Yeah, well, guess what? Fill up that plate and let's get to Jerusalem and let's care for them and let's let them see that we are with them. And they are not alone. Costly unity. For us, it might be something like that. But there are so many other places, right, where unity costs something. And it's not something you can kind of do or don't do in church. There are times where sticking together or not sticking together, do your thing. We're going to Disneyland. You few want to go over to... What's the Star Wars land called? I'm calling it Star Wars land. And you all want to go to Toontown, which no one really wants to go there. And we'll catch up at lunch. Fine. But there are other times where you can't really just decide, let's disconnect for a while. There are other communities and contexts where there's no option there. Y'all ever been cliff jumping before? I have been. You can call me a cliff jumper, I suppose. Um, I was in Parker, Arizona with a group of dudes and um, on a boat, man. And... Anyone catch that reference? Yeah, I know you did. Um, I, I watched these guys cliff jumping, 60 feet up. Never done it before. Let's go. Cliff jumping. And so I'm watching them go, and these young bucks that I'm with, they're all like in their 20s. They're ripped out of their minds. Just these fit men of courage. They're doing backflips and dives 60 feet. I'm going, I don't know. I have trouble getting out of bed in the morning sometimes. And so finally I go up. I, I climb up the backside of the mountain there. It's a nice and peaceful trail. And you look over and what do you see? Impending death. You realize, wow, that is higher than I thought it would be. I am not prepared for this jump. And I'm sitting up there with these guys and they're all like, you know, let's go. And I'm thinking about hitting the water, all the bad things that are going to happen. And then I'm thinking about the obituary. And then I'm thinking about the person reading it going, well, what was he doing up there anyway? That was foolish. He has children, right? So it's just not going well. And I have to jump and I finally go, guys, can we hold hands? The most manly thing I could think to do in the moment. Can we hold my hand? 
And I'll jump, and I'm, I'm like, and I go, all right, James. I'm, I'm holding hands, and then one of the guys, it goes, Matt McFarlane, goes, James, you realize you have to jump. Like, if you don't jump, we're all going to be in trouble. And I'm like, all right, let's go. So we jumped. It was beautiful. I'm a cliff, cliff jumper. It's what I do. <laughs> so in some moments, right, like, there's just no option there. You can't. Just say, let's see if it works out. No, you, you go together or you all fall apart. And it seems like Paul of Tarsus had this crazy notion in his head about this body of Christ. He used that metaphor, the body of Christ. It seems like as Jesus prays for his disciples in John 16, some of you know this, his, one of his last prayers, he prays for us, those who would believe in him through the disciples. That, that in, in many ways is us. What is his prayer? I pray that they may be one, Father, as you and I are one, and that through their unity, the world will know they are my disciples. Unity. It will be under threat. And it's never, division never comes about as like evil. Remember Gargamel from the, remember that Gargamel from the Smurfs? No one? Gargamel. I just, he had that cat. Aziel! You don't remember him? Something needs to call social services on that guy, man. In Gargamel, it never comes like an evil Gargamel coming to divide the church. It always is like, well, I think this is what it should be. And, you know, I am so shocked that no one else sees it that way. Or, like, I kind of want my thing. Or I've been offended or hurt or my needs weren't met. Therefore, and it's, it's always we kind of justify it. We can justify division. Now, this is not to say there are not times for standing your sacred ground on something. But the flavor, right, of, of like the coffee creamer is not the thing to stand that sacred ground on. There are so many things not to stand our sacred ground on and to say, you know what, if it contributes to the unity, let's go. There are times. One example, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., one of the critiques Sadly, that even folks that were, you know, Christian communities um, would level against him would be he's he's being divisive. He's being divisive. Well, amen and hallelujah that he was raising a voice to injustice, speaking truth to power and saying, this will not stand. Right. So there are moments to step out. But I do suspect in my 20 years as a pastor, at least, there are many more moments where we just like drama. We kind of like drama. We're sort of addicted to it sometimes. And it creeps in. We kind of like gossip. Not y'all. I do think this church is, and I'll be straight with you, I don't think gossip is our major problem. But we always want to check it out and be clear on it. We need to be like a church that has like antibodies to gossip. Like it shows up and we're like, hey, did you talk to them about that? Are you sure I should be the one in this conversation? Right? And, And we have a prayer meeting, and I want to tell you about some things I'm going through. So this person really, you know, and it's like, are we praying or are you gossiping? Like, as long as we are a church, it's like, let's go after unity in a big way. I think we're in the spirit of this text. Okay, one more thing on on costly unity, and I'm going to hit my mark today. I'm doing it, is sometimes the cost of unity might be looking for the least of these. Those who are left out, I, spe- I especially think about those of you or those of you with kids that are in school or college age. It can be so easy to 
surround ourselves with those, those that raise our status. The stock price of our coolness goes up when we're with them. And so the invite list is a little shorter than maybe Jesus's would be. And it's so easy to do that. And I'm guilty of it as well. I'll never forget um, one of the coolest experiences I had. If y'all know Theo Windorf, um, uh, he was an ASB president at Penn. The most popular guy on the hill in his high school, in his senior year. Everyone knew him. He had that green bus. He drove around, his hair just flowing in the wind elegantly. And he was just so likable, and people wanted to be around him. And he had his birthday party. And I remember I was grilling steaks, or not hamburgers, not steaks, uh, with Todd. We actually had a grease fire, rather significant, which I tackled with my skill. So I'm a cliff diver and a firefighter. And, and at this party, every cool kid was there. Every single cool kid was there. And every single kid that I promise you, it was their one invitation to a party that year was there. Some of the most awkward kids that you know for a fact, they, have been, they had to watch on Instagram all the other parties and never get an invitation. And Theo took the power of that influence and said, let's invite everybody. I mean, that is so costly unity. And yet it's only by pushing through do you see the glory of God dignifying human beings that would otherwise go unnoticed. It's costly. It costs us something. But when we see that unity displayed, it's beautiful. The last one, servant leadership. Servant leadership. In an age of superficial spectacle, the vintage priorities of 1 Corinthians 16 reveal, they don't preach. I'm preaching. They're just revealing something different. Paul finishes up this letter with a few more what seem to be incidental details, but as we can see, are at the heart of his larger project, culture-shaping project. He says in verse 10, When Timothy comes, see that he has nothing to fear while he's with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. So apparently Paul's going to write a letter, and then Paul's going to send some people. It's a thing he does. He writes letters... And then he sends people. Maybe there's something to this. He says, don't treat him with contempt. You better treat him nice. You better treat him good. Send him on his way in peace so he may return to me. I'm expecting him along with other of the siblings. Be on guard. Stand firm in faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. Everything you do, let it drip with love. Let it smell like love. Let it feel and seem and be love. Everything you do, you know the household of Stephanus. Now he's going to talk about leadership. Those, we, have, we have some high-octane leaders at this church. In this community, I'm talking leaders in all fields, nonprofit, for-profit, education, uh, coaching, athletics, you name it, entertainment. He's talking about leadership. The household of Stephanus. They were the first converts in Achaia, which is the area that Corinth is in. And they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. They've devoted themselves to the service. The phrase there is diakonia. It's like putting a towel over your arm and serving and saying, hey, do you need a refill? 
Does that candle go out? Let me, let me light that for you. Do you want to move your table a little bit? I got you. It's like a really good server. That's what this person was. He was serving the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. I love that when Paul talks about authority, he does not point to positional authority. Well, you know, they are the chair of that board. So respect. You better listen to them. They were well-born. They're in a good family. They're pretty powerful and influential. They're eloquent. They're goal-oriented. They're innovators. They're incredible communicators. So submit to them. That's not what he says. Those are all fine things. Nothing wrong with those. What he says is they have rolled up their sleeves and have invested themselves in the project of service, in the project of giving themselves away to others. Therefore, those are the folks I want you to listen to. Those are the folks that have something that I want you to follow and be captured by. Not positional, not titles, not who do they know, but investment and service. Um, again, in, in an era of superficial spectacle, how you look, how you can turn a phrase, the way that you uh, can dazzle an audience, change something new, gather a team around, influencers. Again, none of these are bad things. All I'm saying is these don't seem to be the key ingredients that Paul goes, oh, yes, that's so good. That's the kind of leadership. Let me tell you one last thing as I close this. Timothy, the dude that he is going to send to the Corinthians after they're done with this letter. I'm going to send you Timothy. He shows up actually in Philippians chapter 2. Philippi, another Roman veterans colony, another site of cool, heavy-hitting Roman power, and a lot of prestigious folks, and many of them or some of them may have been part of the church. Paul writes a letter to this community, and he's going to do the same thing. He's going to send Timothy to them afterwards. And listen to what he says about Timothy. Philippians 2, 19-22. By the way, that's music to my ears. That is like the most beautiful thing. And if, if my son Franco comes up here too, I'll let him close this. He says, he's, he's, in, he's in today, not feeling too good. Philippians 2 He says, verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send to you Timothy that I may be cheered when I receive news about you. For I have no one else like him. What is it, Paul? What has he got? What's on his LinkedIn profile that is so attractive? What makes him the first kid you pick in dodgeball? Why do you have no one else like him? Tell me about him. Charisma, communication, influential leadership, vision, mobilizing people. What about him makes him so darn attractive? Paul of Tarsus, will you tell us? Yes, he will. I want to send Timothy to you soon that I might be cheered when I receive news about you. For I have no one else like him who will genuinely show concern for your welfare. For everyone else looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. I could preach a whole sermon on that, but here's what I want to simply say. Paul seemed to be of the belief that it's one thing to write nice long letters that he didn't know would go down in history as scripture, but we know that. It's one thing to write nice long letters and tell folks some ideas. It's another thing when suddenly someone comes in the community that's living it out, that is followable, followable, 
I don't know how to say that. Followable, I make that word up. You can follow. And Timothy is great leader because he's a servant leader. Because he's asking the question, how can I serve? How can I use my power and resources and influence and abilities and giftings and networks and ideas to serve others? I close with this thought. Um, And it's a personal thought. And it's a pastoral thought. I've been in ministry for 20 years. um, And I have been a pastor here for about 12 years of that time, about 12 years. When, when Bray and I made the decision to come to the River Church, I'll be real, it wasn't because we captured a great vision. We heard a great vision. The vision was great. But that wasn't what made us want to be a part of the community. And it wasn't because Todd and Denise were the best communicators. They're great communicators. But there's a lot of great communicators out there. And it wasn't because the ideas were so fresh and amazing. It's because I had worked with Todd at at a different church. I was a youth pastor. He was a men's pastor. And Bray and I just watched him and Denise. We were young marrieds watching their lives, watching how they raised their kids, watching how they joked and didn't take themselves too seriously but took God seriously and others seriously, watching their flaws and how they're vulnerable and honest about those rather than protecting them and putting a good facade up. We watched that, and when they left to plant the church, Bray and I were like, we want to be with them. Why? Because I want to be around people that live it out. I'm, I, just, I can learn all the facts and propositions, but I need to see it. I need to be around it. And what keeps me at the River Church, of, of many things, God's calling, yeah. But it's that there truly are just such a huge crop of folks from all different walks of life and circumstances that are living out what it means to serve others with their lives. I introduce Jazz every time he preaches by saying, this is a man who he's going to preach a good sermon, but his life is the sermon. And Jazz, I tell you right now in this group community, thank you. Thank you for being a leader that I want to follow because you genuinely care for the welfare of others and not just of yourself. Are we perfect? No. Is jazz perfect? Almost. <laughs> and I can go around. The fact that I get to work with Bill McPhee, a man that I heard about a lot because he's a legend of ministry. If you didn't know that, by the way, he's like a legend of ministry in the South Bay and beyond. And when, he, when I started working with him, and you get to see the life lived and the details, I want to be around that more. And I, and I can't go back, people. I can't go back to fake servant leadership. I think it's our way forward. And I could go on with a list of folks that I would send if I was sending a letter. I'd be like, I'm sending this person along too. And that's who I want to be. My ministry goals, in all honesty, I want to have a nice long life. I want to live a long time. Lord, let's go to 90, 95. Let's go to 100. And I want to be old and have gone the long distance, non-glamorous, not flashy, not spectacle, but just long faithfulness. And for people to be able to say, he was legit. He kind of spit when he talks, and he never hits his timeline. I'm at 32 minutes now. And there were people who were better at leadership and better at teaching and better at thinking that he has a lot of blind spots, but the dude loved people. And he said sorry when he screwed up, and he was faithful. 
And so that's kind of all I want in life. That's, that's what I want it to be. And where do I get that? I suspect it's probably from these scriptures that we spend a lot of time with. That's the idea that comes out. So, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to pray, and then guess what happens? We finished 1 Corinthians. We did it. And we're going to do some worship. And we're going to have some communion where we celebrate in a multi-sensory fashion Jesus giving himself on our behalf, body and blood, that we might have unity with him. And that we might not just be saved by our Savior, but follow his servant leadership. I love you guys. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you set the, you set the example. Jesus, you walked the path. You went before us against all odds, against all human instincts. You loved the unlovable. You prayed for those who spit on you. You hugged the unhuggable. You rebuked those hungry for division and embraced those who were the victims of that division. And I just, God, I want to be more like you, Jesus. I want to be more like you and less like me. So we ask for that all of us do this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.